let's uh, just bow our hearts, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is living and powerful. That, Lord, it's not just an ancient book with some bits of history intertwined with religious sentiment. But, Lord, this is the word of God to his creation. And, Father, we thank you that men and women through the ages have given so much that we can have a copy of this before us now. But, Lord, we thank you that you went to such extraordinary lengths to deliver this word from outside of time to us. We thank you, Lord, for the faithful men and women that we read of through your word who were responsible for being obedient to you and penning the pages that we have. Lord, at the leading and guiding of your Holy Spirit. And so now, Lord, we ask that you would reveal to us as we study this morning more of you, more of your wonderful plan, that, Lord, we may just be in awe at your grace and your mercy, that you, in your love, would reach out and rescue a people for yourself. And so, Father, we thank you for this, and we pray your blessing upon this time. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are ready to receive, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. We are on our third session of our journey through the entire Bible. Um, So this morning what we're going to try and cover is from Genesis chapter 12 through to Genesis chapter 50. So far, the first session, if you remember, we just looked at the creation of the world. That God is creator. It's something the world challenges. But the more you study, the more you look at the evidence... You're not left in any doubt whatsoever that this world is not here as the product of time and chance and uh, evolution. This world is the product of a designer beyond anything we can imagine. Chapter 2 deals, of course, with the Garden of Eden and this idyllic setting that God had intended for, for man and for woman and for the human race to start. But, of course, God already knew what was going to happen. And God makes an escape route which to us is almost counterintuitive, but God says that if you sin, you will die. But by bringing death as a punishment for sin, God also allows for the possibility of a substitutionary sacrifice, somebody who would die in the place of the one who was guilty. And God himself is the one who's responsible for the very first blood sacrifices. Two animals have their blood shed and their skins are given to Adam and Eve as clothing. And so on through the rest of the Bible we see this whole idea of this blood sacrifice. The blood being shed, blood which speaks of the life of the flesh to atone for sin. And ultimately leading up to the cross where Jesus himself shed his blood. We talked in chapter 3 of Genesis of the fall of man. This incredible uh, situation as Eve first and then Adam um, stumble moving away from God's plan for their lives. But of course this was a part of God's plan and God knew that this was a, uh, a step that had to be taken. Man had been given free choice. God could have made man a machine just to obey and do what he says. But God gave us free will. And with that free will we ended up in the predicament we are. That leads on of course to the situation with Cain and Abel. Um, not understanding of course from Cain's perspective the reality of the blood sacrifice. Abel was a shepherd, he offers a lamb, but he didn't offer a lamb because he was a shepherd, but because he understood 
obviously have been passed down to him from his father, the need for the shed blood to make atonement for sin. Cain offers his own effort. That's religion. Trying to get right with God by the things we do. And then in Genesis 5, that incredible genealogy that details God's plan in the names of the people that are recorded in that chapter. Chapter 6 through 9, we have the flood of Noah. Again, uh, some people uh, have a, an issue with uh, the reality of the flood. Uh, some people even question whether it took place. Uh, you only need to go out and find marine fossils at the top of the highest mountains. That's pretty good evidence. Um, but actually the Bible itself makes it clear that the waters covered the highest mountains. Uh, it was a global flood. And God brought that to rid the world of this problem. Uh, of these fallen angels, these angelic beings that have produced the offspring um, that we read about through the rest of Scripture. And actually, it makes so much sense of what we read in the rest of Scripture. Um, And the reason for the battles that take place in the Old Testament, and as we go through our journey, we'll see how all of those things tie together. Genesis 10 and 11, these incredible chapters, detailed chapters, that give us the history of the human uh, families, really, around the world, how the nations spread out from where they are. Uh, So that's where we got to last time. So this morning, what we're going to do is have a very quick tour through Genesis 12 to 20, which will deal with the life of Abraham. Genesis 21 through to 26, which deals through or deals with the life and uh, times of Isaac. And then 27 through to 36, where Jacob is the focal point. And then finally, from Genesis 37 to the end of the book, uh, the principal subject is this man Joseph. Those uh, individuals make up the, the patriarchs, if you like. Now again, just to refresh us, because I want to understand the, the theme that is going on here. God has created everything. It's very good. Lucifer, this angelic being who'd been given the highest place, rebels. You see, just as we see in Esther, as God is creating the world, no doubt Satan was thinking, well, to whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? That's words of Haman that we read in Esther, as the king there is looking to honor not Haman, but Mordecai. And no doubt Satan has his, if I may put it this way, his feathers ruffled a little when he realizes that all of this wonderful creation is not going to be given to him, but to Adam. Because Adam is made in the image of God and given charge over creation. Satan is furious. He wants to become like God. See, angelic beings were not made like God, whereas man was. And as a result of this, Satan sets out to try and destroy man, but God, in his mercy, promises a saviour. Not just a saviour who will save us from the penalty of sin, but who will also crush and destroy the serpent, this, this uh, Satan, who we see embodied in the serpent in chapter 3 of Genesis. Uh, this saviour will be a kinsman redeemer. He will be of the human race. It will be of the seed of the woman. So now everybody knows that the promised seed is going to be somebody who will be a descendant of Adam and Eve. Now for Satan, the real challenge is finding out who that is going to be and trying to destroy the possibility, firstly, of that individual being born. And if so, if that individual is born, to try and destroy that individual because then Satan would win. It's very clear. Now, Satan, as we saw, launches this full-scale attack against the seed. Because, of course, he didn't know at this point who was it going to be. It could have been Abel. Well, Abel's dealt with and killed. Now we understand partly why Abel had to be killed from Satan's perspective. That leads, obviously, to the first murder, as we saw. But the, the second assault 
is even more deadly. As Satan infiltrates the human race through these fallen angelic beings. There are those who have different views and they're entitled to their views. We have um, a number of different commentaries that we can refer to and you'll see a lot of different uh, ideas put forward. One of the um, interesting scriptures is in Peter, Second Peter, where we're told there of the angels that sinned and I believe it's talking about, because of the context, in the days of Noah and it says there that they were put in prison. Now, the answers that some people give and some of the contraries, I was looking at um, Albert Barnes and... Um, um, some of the other, uh, Adam Clark, who on most topics in scripture I think are very good. But on this point they were actually suggesting that those angelic beings, it was that reference there to the ones that were imprisoned, was all of the angels. And it's not a specific group of angels. Well if that's the case, may I ask, who are the principalities and powers that we wrestle against? If all the angels have been imprisoned, and that's what Ben and Peter is referring to, who are the angels we wrestle against? So that passage in Peter has to refer to a subset, a specific group of angels who have been imprisoned. And of course the question would be why? When we look at it in the context, I think it makes a lot of sense. So we see this uh, problem, and wickedness as a result of this goes off the scale on planet Earth. God intervenes to save humanity, and his Noah and his family, the only ones who remain genetically pure. And as a result, God sends the flood as an act of grace to preserve humanity. But after the flood, Satan does a far more subtle thing. This threefold stratagem that we really covered last time. World government. Now this is to manipulate mankind against the seed. That led originally to the Tower of Babel. But it's coming again in our day as we start to see the governments of the world starting to work and move together. False religion, all of which really started at the time of Babel. We were talking on Thursday night at our Bible study about some of the background and details behind this. But every false religion on the planet stems from Babel, from Babylon. And the purpose, of course, was to deceive mankind into following a false seed. You see, the idea, of course, was that they knew that this saviour was going to be the seed of a woman. Well, Nimrod, who we have mentioned in Genesis chapter 10... His wife, when Nimrod is killed, suddenly is about to lose her throne and position. And so she says, oh, before you take away my throne and position, the baby that I'm carrying is the seed. I'm the woman. And it leads to all the false religions that we have from there. That got adopted by the Catholic Church. It's been adopted by many other religions around the world. Zoroaster, again, the seed of the woman. All of those uh, ideas and concepts all go back to that point. And then, of course, Satan embarks on this, what I would call a seek and destroy plan. See, before the flood, this angelic invasion and these giants that were produced was global. But after the flood, it's not global. It seems to be targeted, very, very much targeted, to obviously destroy the threat of the real seed. So Satan is trying to deceive everybody into following a false seed, but just in case that doesn't work, if we can destroy the real seed, then again he wins. But Satan obviously has good intelligence because he knows where to target. And I don't know if you've ever found it interesting, but the giants that we read of in scripture are all centered on one place. It's the place that God gives to Abraham. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So 
the portion of scripture um, that we're looking at is this period now, so the, the tail end or the, the last part of the book of Genesis really, but you realise how much of history the book of Genesis actually covers uh, and gives us so many answers to so many questions. Now, let's jump in then. Genesis chapter 12. And we read there, Now the Lord had said... Now that's so significant that we take note of that because this is something that we read about actually in the New Testament. Uh, the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. But God had said it and Abraham hadn't done that. In fact, it's actually Stephen in the New Testament when he's speaking before these Jewish leaders. He says, Men and brethren of fathers, Hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. So this is before, this is when he lived in Ur of the Chaldees, before he moved up river and said unto him, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred uh, and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from thence, when his father was dead, so he moves to this place up river, stays there until his father dies, and then finally he removes into this land wherein you now dwell. If we're to look at that on the map, Abraham is called to leave this idol-worshipping place, and actually the, the, the remains and the uh, things they've discovered in Ur suggest that this was a very advanced culture. They've even found electric motors and the like um, that had been produced at that time, not necessarily to the scale and the, the technological advancement that we have today, but then they weren't some primitive group, certainly. And he's told to leave here and come to this land. Now, of course, you wouldn't necessarily cross the desert because of the, uh, the difficulty in terrain. But this was a typical route that would have taken up. But rather than come into Canaan as Abraham is told to do, he comes and dwells in Haran up here. And he stays there until his father dies. And then finally, in obedience, he does move down to this land. And this promise that we read about then in chapter 12 is often referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. Now this is part one. There's three parts to this, so as we'll see this morning. God says, I will make of thee a great nation. Well, we know that's true. And I will bless thee. Well, Abraham has been blessed more than uh, the most you could certainly uh, list and chart from history. Abraham is uh, revered by the three monotheistic faiths, by obviously Christianity, by Judaism and by Islam. And he is a, a name that's revered uh, in, in all uh, these uh, different areas. And make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, all nations have indeed been blessed through Abraham's offspring, the seed of the woman. And the reason God is now choosing this man, who will become this nation, is to protect the seed. It's like an incubator, in a sense, to provide uh, a safety mechanism for the seed to be delivered safely. And God has and still blesses those who bless national Israel. Through history, you can look at that. Um, there have been those who have cursed Israel who themselves have been cursed. And there are those that it's been said many times before that you can chart the decline of the British Empire from the time it turned its back on Israel. Today, people say, why hasn't God judged America for all of the iniquity and sin that is produced by that country? And the one answer is because they still by and large, support Israel. There are issues, of course, 
Matthew 25, we'll see the dramatic, and we've studied this recently in our journey through Matthew, the dramatic conclusion of this prophecy to curse those who curse you. And we see this judgment of the nations detailed in Matthew 25, where the criteria is how they have treated Jesus' brethren, speaking of the Jews. The whole of that portion of scripture, as we looked when we studied it, is dealing with Israel. In Genesis 12, we have seven I will statements from God. If you remember in Isaiah chapter 14, you have the I wills of Satan. Well, now God does his I wills, if you like. He says of Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. I will bless all the families of the earth through you. And ultimately, that, of course, is through Jesus Christ. Now, the conditions of this covenant that God establishes are that Abraham was to get out of your own country, which he doesn't do immediately. Go to the land that I will show you, which again, he doesn't do that when asked. And to separate from your kindred, he doesn't do that either. I find this a great encouragement because, you know, we in our own lives and our walks with God are often disobedient. We don't hear, we don't understand sometimes, we don't do what God asks of us. But it's interesting as we go through... And we look at Abraham's life. It's not until chapter 13 that Abraham finally separates from his brethren as he separates from Lot. You'll notice if you study and you read through this portion of scripture that Abraham keeps building altars. If you haven't noticed it, go back and look at that. And it's interesting because it's every time that he hears from God again. And it's almost like uh, every time he hears from God, he's reminded that he should be faithful and trust God. Every time he remembers to obey, he comes back to God and offers his sacrifices through his life. So Abraham finally does come down into this land of Canaan. In chapter 13 of Genesis, we then see the separation of Lot as Lot looks out. They realize they've got a problem. There's too many of them. Um, The land isn't sufficient for both of them at the same place at the same time. There's Lot and his herdsmen and cattle and Abraham and his herdsmen and cattle. So... Abraham does a a wonderful thing at this point. He says, you know what, God, I'm going to let you decide. And he puts the the choice, he says to Lot, Lot, make a decision. Abraham is so confident that God's in control here that he lets God make the decision effectively by passing over to Lot to choose. And it's interesting because we see a downward progression with Lot. Lot beholds the land. It looks good, you know. It's good to the eyes. He then chooses. It's a willful step. He departs. He ends up dwelling in the plain. And then he pitches his tent toward Sodom, we're told. Finally, he ends up dwelling in Sodom. And then at the end, we find him seated in the gate. He's become a member of the town council. That's how easy it is to go from being separate from the things of this world to suddenly being right caught up in the middle of it. Psalm 1. Verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. Well, Lot didn't do that. He took those progressionary steps, if you like. He started off, if you like, listening to what the world was saying. And then he finds he's kind of standing alongside them, and next he's sitting in the seat. Chapter 14 of Genesis, we're then introduced to a battle that takes place between these groups of kings. We have some Shemite kings and some Hamite kings. The descendants of Shem 
and the descendants, descendants of Ham. Descendants of Ham include the kings of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and so on. And then we have the descendants of Shem. And it's interesting in the, in the list as we have them in Scripture, in Genesis 14, we have the leader of this group, this individual, uh, Chedorlaomer. Um, I call him the big cheese. Cheddar, Leomer, never mind. Um, he's the king that's kind of leading this uh, this army. Um, but the one that's listed first is this um, Amraphel, who's the king of Shinar, or to you and I, the king of Babylon. And one thing that's worth noting at this point is when we have lists of people on names in Scripture, the one that always seems to come first is the one that is of biblical significance, primarily. Okay, it's just a little subtle thing. But when you have lists of names, very often the first name in that list, it may not be the oldest of a group of people or the most significant at that time, but it's the one that has the significance from a biblical perspective. And Babylon will become hugely significant later on. Anyway, these nations, these Hamite kings, served Jedalamir for 12 years. In the 13th year they rebel, so he ends up launching this attack against them. He defeats them, takes the spoils and the rebels. But Lot also is captured, Abraham's nephew. Now, let's just have a quick look, because I think this is interesting. This is Genesis 14. The 14th year came Jedalamir, and the kings that were with him and smote. Now, the ones I've highlighted here, the Rephaims, there's the, there's the Zoomims, Emims, Horites, Amalekites, and Amorites. These are all those who were the descendants, or the, they were the giant tribes, if you like, all centered in and around Canaan. And it's interesting that God here is using the descendants of Shem to rid the land already of these uh, giant tribes that were there. And the, the question of uh, regenerate, unregenerate, why, is it, why doesn't God rid the, the land of the others? Because there's lots of other people in there that he didn't, they didn't get moved out and so on. Now, this has nothing to do with that. This is to do with the fact that these were genetically corrupted. Deuteronomy chapter 2, later on, not in part of our study this morning, but we find that they're still in the land. Just let me read this to you. The Emims dwelt there in times past, a people great and many and tall as the Anakims, which also were accounted giants as the Anakims, but the Moabites call them Emims. The Horems also dwelt in Seir um, before time, but the children of Esau succeeded them when they had destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their stead, as Israel did unto the land of his possession, which the Lord gave unto them. And when thou comest over against the children of Ammon, don't distress them, and it goes on, and then just picking up a little bit further down, uh, it was the land of giants, we're told. Giants dwelt there in old time, and the Amorites called them Zamzumins, the people great and many. Uh, and tall as the Amakins, but the Lord destroyed them before them, and they succeeded them. So the Lord uses other nations to deal with this problem. Satan is trying to get rid of the seed, but the Lord is using other nations as well in preparation for what we're going to see as we move on. If we just look at a map, Jedaliah had this large empire um, that he looked after. The Hamite kings were in this region. So they come down, they capture Lot and everything, and they kind of go away with him. Now, as we go on, Abraham then mobilizes an army of 318 trained servants. That tells you something about the wealth and the prosperity of Abraham. And he goes after Lot to come and recover him, uh, recapture him, as it were. When Abraham returned from the battle, he's met by this very interesting character, this Melchizedek, the king of Salem. 
Um, it's by the place that we, you and I today were called Jerusalem. It's the same location. Now, Jerusalem was located up on a, a mountain. Uh, it was above the plain. So he's the king of above, if we may put it that way. And he brings bread and wine. A very interesting uh, slide of this. Now, we're actually not told much in the Old Testament. He uh, uh, crops up in Psalms. But then the writer of the Hebrews says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness. That's what his name means, king of righteousness. And after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, uh, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, um, but made like unto the Son of God, abides a priest continually. Now, consider how this great man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham uh, gave the tenth of his spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they be come out of the loins of Abraham, but he whose descent is not counted from then received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. The writer to the Hebrews is making the point that this Melchizedek is greater, his priesthood is greater than that of the Levites, which would come later. Because Abraham, who was obviously the father of the Levites going down the line, even Abraham brings his offering. And uh, there's questions about who this individual was and... Um, if uh, you want to dig into that, I'm sure the commentaries will give you lots of uh, ideas and suggestions. The bottom line is we don't know. Um, some suggest he was Seth, but we're told that we don't know his genealogy, so I think that's unlikely and so on. Some people think he's a type of Christ. Certainly that would fit, but I don't think he's a pre-incarnate um, per, uh, vision of Jesus in any way. So, so then we get the king of Sodom as well at uh, this battle. He comes out to meet Abraham as Abraham's coming back. And he was from the lower part of the plain. He was, if you like, the king of beneath. And the reason I'm making this point is because I think it's very interesting that the king of Sodom offers Abraham gifts, gives him all sorts of rewards, in exchange for the souls of the men. So the king of above versus the king of beneath is what we're seeing pitched here in this chapter. The king of above brings blessings. The king of beneath offers rewards that he might take of the souls. And I think it's very significant that that is exactly what Satan will do. He'll try and overload us with blessings and with good things and with the, the bright lights that he might take our souls. But the king of above is the one that wants to bring us his bread and wine. Obviously symbolic of the body and the blood of Christ. It's an incredible uh, picture uh, that's painted in chapter 14. Chapter 15 the second part of this covenant, the unconditional land covenant. Abraham falls into a deep sleep. God makes his declaration without Abraham's participation. And uh, forgive me, I'm saying Abraham. Obviously, at this point, it's Abraham. Um, but uh, you'll forgive me, you understand. Abraham becomes Abraham. as it uh, has this hey, the Hebrew letter, uh, inserted into his name. Uh, the breath of God, in a sense, the spirit of God. Uh, that uh, this sacrifice is explained in Jeremiah 34, 18 and 19. And what would happen is that God alone, uh, two individuals typically would pass through um, two pieces of an offering. It would be divided in two. 
And these two individuals would pass through the centre as a confirmation that they are being joined together in this covenant. Well, on this occasion, God alone does it. Abraham's asleep. So God sets up this covenant, and Abraham, all he has to do is accept it. There's nothing he's doing uh, as part of this. It's declared eternal and unconditional. It's reconfirmed by an oath in Genesis 22. It's confirmed to Isaac and Jacob in Genesis 26. Despite their acts of obedience, it wasn't based upon their ability to obey or disobey. And in the New Testament in Hebrews 6, it's declared immutable. God cannot lie. Now, Abraham, we find, was actually promised the boundaries of the land between the river of Egypt and the Euphrates. It's interesting how people often talk about the West Bank in regard to Israel's territory. The question needs to be asked, which river did you have in mind? The full extent of the land as was promised, never actually uh, came into Israel's possession as such. For a very short period of time with David and Solomon, Israel did have the land up to the Euphrates, the Gaza Strip and so on, or in the way that is referred to in Scripture from Dan, which was the top to Beersheba in the south. Nevertheless, the ideal of the promise was not lost sight of. And Ezekiel chapter 47 speaks of the fulfillment of these things. Chapter 15, still verse 13, says, uh, And he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. Now, we haven't got time to go into this this morning, but on Thursday this week at our Bible study, we're going to go through this chronology, because it's something that, uh, amazingly, most scholars get wrong. And for many years, I didn't understand this, and I talked through uh, the book of Exodus and these portions of Scripture. Um, so on Thursday night, we're going to go through and we're going to look at these details and how it all works together, this 400 years. And you may be aware that in Exodus 12, we have 430 years referred to. So we'll look at how that all fits together. Um, but we're told that thou should go to thy fathers in peace and you should be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, now there's a hint for us to start with, uh, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now these are of those tribes inhabiting the land. What does it mean? Is it simply saying, as it would appear, that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete? So is God just waiting for them to sin a little bit more before he brings judgment? Now, I believe that God knows what Satan's up to, and he knows that there's going to be an end point of what Satan's trying to accomplish here. He's waiting for something to take place. It's the end of something. And I think what we're seeing here is the end of the influx of the Nephilim, and that's going to cease. When that ceases, we'll find that God will remove Abraham's descendants out of the land to protect them. And when it's the right time, he'll bring them back into the land. And again, the whole idea of, if, if we were to argue that that isn't referring to the, the Nephilim, these descendants of the, the fallen angels, the giants and so on, well then, they're no less prone to um, ungodly people in any part of the world. So there's got to be something other than that as we see. Now the boundaries are unmistakable. Again, from the river of Egypt, the great river to the Euphrates. So the area that we're looking at, that's the Euphrates. The river in Egypt uh, is this uh, Wadi El Arish. It's what uh, most commentators believe we were looking at. Um, so that's the area. Now, the, the north and south dimensions we're not given. 
Um, but that's the, the extent of the land promised to Israel. Now, Abraham will die in the land. His son Isaac also will die in the land. And his grandson Jacob will die in Egypt, but will come back and be buried in the land. And then after this 400 years of servitude is complete, Moses will lead Israel out of Egypt uh, at the right time, just to fulfill these promises. Joshua eventually will lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And it's then, when we get to that point, that this, this kind of waiting is over, that this will then become their land. Now, just to very quickly go through, we have the land as it existed under Joshua, um, but then we find the, the inheritance uh, increases, uh, the, the area that they're given uh, dominion over. Under King David, they have an even greater area uh, that goes up and includes part of Syria and so on. Um, before the captivity, though, we find that in 722 AD, uh, uh, Syria come and take the northern kingdoms. So this is the only part that's left before Babylon finally come. And in uh, 606 BC, uh, the first of three sieges. Now, it's interesting because Israel, as we say, go to Babylon. The Babylonian Empire covers all of that region, including the land of Israel. Now, um, jumping forward, we'll cover this in detail when we get there. We have this incredible dream of Nebuchadnezzar detailed in Daniel 2, looking at the successive nations that are going to follow on. And it's very clear that Nebuchadnezzar was his head of gold and so on, this chest and arms of silver representing Persia, and the belly and thighs of, of Greece, and then his legs representing Rome, uh, seemingly in these two phases. So the Persian Empire, the chest and arms of silver, is a massive empire, the largest the world had known to this point. Again, Israel are engulfed within that. Then the Greek Empire, uh, even larger still, uh, under Alexander the Great. And then finally we get to the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was encompassing North Africa and off into Europe and so on. Now, from this point, we find that there's a number of divisions, if you like, or breakdowns as we go through. Israel, we find, are scattered around the world uh, in fulfilment of prophecy and so on. We then get to the time of the Byzantine Empire, which covers uh, areas similar to that of the Roman Empire did. And then Islam rises, um, and we find that it covers again a large area. Jerusalem Israel being under the sway of uh, Islam during this time, followed by the Ottoman Empire, which leads us up to the time of the First World War. Now, as a result of this, there was an agreement known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement in 1916, which was looking to give Israel this kind of territory back. And actually, the uh, British and French mandate in 1918 uh, was to give Israel a large portion of land. Now, we have as well the Balfour Declaration. Um, this note um, from Foreign Secretary H.J. Balfour to Lord Rothschild, um, one of the Britain's most prominent Jews, said that His Majesty's government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Now, that's the area they were promised. By 1922, this is the area they were given. Okay, so the British government went back on what it had promised. And then finally, in 1948, as Israel became a nation again and so on, uh, this was the area that had been partitioned by the UN for Israel. As a result of the war that took place, Israel then claimed back a greater territory. 
In the Six-Day War in 67, they got the whole of this region, including the Sinai Peninsula as well, which they then subsequently gave back to Egypt under political pressure. In 78, this area, again, it becomes uh, the area allotted to Israel. But then as part of the 2003 roadmap to peace, uh, the land was petitioned again. And Gaza is again uh, taken off of Israel. And this area referred to as the West Bank and so on, which you hear so much on the news about. Now, uh, we could talk a lot about the UN's bias. Just a couple of things just to draw your attention to. Of 865 Security Council resolutions passed before 1990, 61% of them, 526, were directed against Israel. That's a country the size of Wales, one one one-thousandth of the world's population. It just doesn't make any sense. Of 690 General Assembly resolutions voted on before 1990, 62%, 429, were directed against Israel. During five wars against Israel that Israel did not start, no UN resolutions were made against the Arab nations. That's incredible. You've got to see that there's something bigger than just what we hear on uh, BBC News and so on. In November 2003, uh, Israel introduced its first resolution since 1976, and they requested, I think this is reasonable, that Arab terrorists not target Israeli women and children. Do you believe that was rejected? But the UN then adopted a resolution that demanded protection of Palestinian children from Israel. You start to see how one side of this is. As I said before, there's two thrones. If you understand them, you'll understand so much of history and our own lives. There's the throne of our own hearts and Jesus Christ needs to be sat there. And there's the throne of Israel and Jesus Christ will be sat there. But this is what these contentions really are all about. So, what of the promise given to Abraham then that he would have this land? Well, again, as we mentioned, revealed in Ezekiel, Israel will, will yet have that land. This will be the area that Jesus sitting on the throne of David will have under national Israel during the millennial kingdom. Which leads us on to chapter 16 and we'll pick up the pace a little bit as we go through these things. Sarah decides she's going to give some advice here. We've got a problem. They, they need offspring. They haven't had a child. So Sarah comes up with a plan to help God. Never a good idea. We're much better waiting and being patient. And as a result of this, we know that Ishmael is born and it causes so many problems. The lesson, quite simply, is God does not need our help. We are much better learning to be patient and waiting and trusting him. The third part of this covenant is in Genesis 17. Um, This is my covenant which shall be between me and you uh, and your seed after you. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised and you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. So this is the, the sign of the covenant that God is establishing. Now the interesting thing is that vitamin K, which is a clotting agent, is not formed in babies until the fifth to the seventh day. This also, prothrombin also is necessary. On the third day, it's only 30% of normal. On the eighth day of a child's life, it peaks at 110% and then levels off to normal. If you try to circumcise a child earlier than the eighth day, it would be very dangerous for the health of the child. It would bleed, there would be no clotting agents necessary. Doing it after that also causes problems. The eighth day is the ideal day. How did Moses know that? Was it trial and error? No, I don't think so. This is clearly another evidence of divine wisdom in the pages of Scripture. God said to Abraham, Genesis 17, verse 15, 
As for Sarah, thy wife, you shall call not a name Sarah, but Sarah. Again, that that breath of God, the the, the hey in the, the Hebrew. Um, that's what her name shall be. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. So important, because God is promising this seed to be of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of peoples shall be of her, is what they're told. And Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, that is ninety years, bear? Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed. And you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. Now this is so important that we understand this because this is before Genesis 22. Abraham is told here that they will have a child, his name will be Isaac, and he will have offspring. And it's going to be through Isaac that this seed of the woman is going to come. So we have those three covenants, part one, part two, part three. These all slides will be available uh, if people want to review them and go through afterwards. Let's just move on for now. Chapter 18, Abraham gets a visit. Two angels, taken on physical form, come and with the Lord themselves, come and sit down, they eat a meal. Uh, Abraham washes their feet and so on. At that point, this is when God announces the birth of Isaac. It's going to be in a year's time from this point, he's told. And the two angels then head off to Sodom and Gomorrah. God reveals his plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their iniquity, of their sin. Abraham, of course, is concerned about Lot. And we have this wonderful verse, we read 25, verse 25 of chapter 18, where Abraham is speaking to God and he says, That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It's a great statement. And of course, it's a statement of truth, that God will only ever do that which is right. And God cannot judge the righteous with the wicked. And we'll see in a moment. Let's just look at the details. When we get to Sodom and Gomorrah, these angels arrive there and Lot invites them to come and stay in his home. Uh, The inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah want to know Lot's guests. If any of you have read the King James and you'll know that word is there, they were wanting to have a sexual encounter, sexual relationship with these beings. I think this is very interesting because it's a rebuttal to all those who misapply Matthew 22.30 talks there Jesus said about uh, in heaven we will be as the angels will neither marry or be given in marriage and people therefore say that the whole angelic um, uh, situation of them coming to earth and offspring and so on couldn't happen well then explain this because these men clearly saw these individuals who took on human form who were able to eat food who have feet that could be washed come to Lot's house and they want to have a sexual relationship with them so that doesn't follow that that line of arguing so um, Lot is finally removed and judgment falls what's interesting is that is a prerequisite God has to have Lot out of there before he'll bring his judgment because he cannot judge the wicked and the just another compelling reason why we believe that the church will be removed prior to the tribulation time 
Of course, Lot's wife looks back, and that's more than just a casual glance over her shoulder. It's a hankering. It's a desire to be back and have what she had. Lot's daughters, now without husbands and keen to preserve their father's line, become pregnant by their father in a very strange, bizarre uh, situation. Uh, their offspring become Moab and Ammon. These, these regions here to the side of Israel, on the east side of the Jordan, so Ammon have that territory typically, and Moab have this territory, the descendants um, of Lot's daughters and Lot as the father. We then get to the situation with Sodom and Gomorrah, and lots of interesting studies being done. Um, there was a suggestion that there was once a huge oil field under this area on the dead, by the Dead Sea, and you can see the uh, Gomorrah and Sodom uh, all around this area. And the suggestion is that the pressure got so great that it forced the... Um, the oil up and it just came raining down as uh, bitumen and everything else. So it's kind of literally fire and brimstone coming down from heaven. And they've done, done lots of uh, digging and uh, lots of evidence to support those things. So um, if you want to look at some other time, it's a worthy of study. Uh, interestingly enough, we mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago about Donald Patton and a friend of his, Robert Hatch. They've done this study looking at these events that take place in the Old Testament and they all seem to occur at set intervals. And this uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was, seems to have been around uh, 1897 BC, the event takes place. Chapter 20, Abraham's half-truth. He says, well, Sarah's uh, my sister. And he does that because he doesn't want to be um, killed because Sarah was very beautiful. Of course, uh, eventually Abimelech finds out and uh, asks Abraham to leave and so on. Chapter 21, finally Isaac is born. About the age of five, typically, is uh, common in that culture. Isaac would have been weaned. And Abraham throws a great party to celebrate this. You read in chapter 21. Of course, Ishmael is very jealous. It's, shouldn't I have that? You know, And I think this is so interesting because there's a recurring theme as we go through Scripture. Those who are, if may, we may say, not on God's side, continually have this kind of jealousy, I want that. It was the same with, with Cain. He ends up killing Abel. And of course here, the Ishmael's wanting something that he hasn't been given. And it's so telling because of the father of lies had exactly that problem originally. And thus begins the oppression of Abraham's seed in a land that was not their own. We need to understand that at this point, Canaan is not their land. It's going to be given to them, but not yet theirs. And again, we'll explore that more on Thursday evening. Chapter 22, possibly one of the greatest models in all of the Bible. We have a father willing to sacrifice a son. Now, from the point that Abraham is given this command by God... Isaac's as good as dead to him. He knows he's got to go and offer him. So for three days, Isaac is as dead. But of course, on the third day, he gets his son back. They climb Mount Moriah, which you and I would know as Golgotha, the same place. And Isaac asks this question. He says to Abraham, his father, My father, Abraham says, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And that's no um, accident in the text. God is saying, absolutely as we read it there, that God would provide himself. In John's Gospel, in the first chapter, 29th verse, 
We read the next day, John, seeing Jesus coming unto them, said, Behold the Lamb. That's the answer to this question that that Isaac asks. Where is the Lamb? John answers it. He says, Behold the Lamb. A ram, of course, is eventually used um, because the Lamb was to come later. The place, as I said, uh, is on this just up from where the temple in Jerusalem was eventually built, right at the top there. You and I, as I say, know as Golgotha, and uh, again the whole area at the top there. In Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Of whom it was said that in Isaac thy seed shall be called, accounting that God, notice this, accounting Abraham's believing that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. That's amazing. Abraham knew that Isaac was going to be the one through whom his seed was going to come. Even if he'd have gone through this act and offered him as a sacrifice, Abraham, we're told, was confident that God would have to raise him up because God had already made a promise that his seed was going to come through him. Now, after this event, an incredible picture looking forward, of course, to what another father would do some 2,000 years later. As they come down, we read, Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. But where's Isaac? No mention of Isaac. Interestingly, Isaac is personally edited out of the record until he's united with his bride, two chapters later, at this well, the well of Lahiroi. Incredible. Chapter 23, Sarah dies, and we have the account there. Chapter 24, we move on, and Abraham commissions his servant to find a bride for Isaac. Now, I'm not going to read all the text here, but this servant, who's not named at this point, elsewhere we have his name, sets up a test. Basically, he goes back to the area that Abraham had come from, up to Haran, to that area, uh, and looking there, uh, Abraham says, I don't want you to take a wife from amongst the Canaanites. Why? Because there's a genetic problem with them. And so he makes him go up. And he made uh, his camels to kneel down within a city uh, by a well of water at the time of the evening, uh, the time that women go out to draw water, and said, O oh Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day, show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water. And the daughters of the men of the city came out to draw water. And let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, Let down thy pitcher, I pray thee that I may drink. And she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that is appointed, uh, that thou was appointed for thy servant Isaac. So this test is being laid. Incredibly, we find that Rebecca then comes out and she does exactly this. She offers him a drink and then also says, would your camels like a drink too? Let me water those. Now, this is just incredible. Let's just uh, move on because I, I love verse 21. And the man wondering at her held his peace to wit whether the Lord has made his journey prosperous or not. That's great. He gives such a detailed test and it's answered in every possible way. And he says, God, is this you? And just, you know, we do that, don't we? The ten camels, this is incredible. According to the California Academy of Sciences, a very thirsty camel, such as one just off a long, hot caravan, can gulp 35 gallons of water in six minutes. One record-holding camel, I don't know who does these tests, but anyway, one record-holding camel drank more than 50 gallons in one day. 
They're thirsty old things. And obviously they can go for a long time without drinking, as we know. Now, familiar with a typical two-litre bottle of, uh, of uh, soft drink, whatever. Um, assume that Rebecca can draw ten litres every five minutes. It's going to take her over an hour to water one camel at that rate. She'd need to be drawing water for over 11 hours to water all the camels. Now, wonder he wondered at her. The fact that she offers to do this. But of course there's a model here that's great. Because the father, Abraham, sends an unnamed servant, just as God the Father sent the Holy Spirit, to find a bride for the son. The unnamed servant uses ten beasts of burden, which is what camels were, to go and bring the bride back, endowing her with gifts. The bride tries to satisfy the beast of burdens. Now we're not told in the text how Rebecca really got on with that. The implication is she... she Gave them all the drink. But of course it would have been impossible. And that's exactly the point. You see, something else that has number 10 in the Bible is the law. The Ten Commandments. We can't keep the law. Why was the law given? To bring us to Christ. What do these camels do? They bring Rebekah back to Isaac. To the awaiting bridegroom we're told in Galatians this, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ we cannot keep the law no more than Rebecca would have been able to satisfy the thirst of all of these camels very interesting picture that's painted for us there's a number of Gentile brides we find in scripture of course for uh, Adam we have Eve this is prior to uh, the Jewish nation being established for Isaac, Rebecca, Joseph had his, his Gentile bride Asenath Moses has Zipporah, Salmon has Rahab, and Boaz has Ruth. If you're familiar with the way that seven so often permeates scripture, there's one missing from that list. And it's you and I, it's the bride of Christ, the Gentile bride. All of which have no death recorded, interestingly. Chapter 25 details the descendants of Abraham, and you may uh, not be aware, hopefully if you've read scripture you'll, you'll have picked up, but after Sarah dies, uh, Abraham marries again, uh, marries Keturah. We're given a descendants of all of these people, um, and typically all of that group that you can see highlighted there are typically under the, the banner we would refer to as Arabs, uh, the, uh, the Arabian people, and so on. In chapters 25 through 28, we have the account of Esau and Jacob. Really, it's a great uh, dramatization of the flesh and the spirit being laid out here. And like father, like son, Isaac had been involved in a a deception previously, uh, and so on here with uh, Jacob. Uh, Esau has these foreign wives, which are a grief of heart and mind, we're told, to Rebekah and Isaac. And then as a result of all these things, Jacob ends up stealing this blessing, and obtaining this birthright. As a result, the Isaac and Rebekah are concerned that Esau would try and kill Jacob, so they send Jacob away up to Uncle Laban, back up to Haran. But en route, the covenant is confirmed as they go. So now Jacob is going back up here, where he's going to stay for just over 20 years. Chapters 29 through 30, we find that Jacob gets married twice, in actual fact, almost four times, because we find that he marries, originally he thinks he's getting Rachel, but he ends up with Leah, then he ends up with Rachel, and then he gets the handmaids as well. God blesses, though, the work of his hands there and prospers him. And we see then the birth of the twelve tribes coming at this point. Those twelve tribes, we have some from Leah, some from Rachel, we have Joseph and Benjamin, and then we have 
Gad and Asher from Zilpah and Dan and Nathalie from Bilhah, these two handmaids that are given to Jacob also. And thus we have our twelve. Notice that Manasseh and Ephraim are here under the, this list because we'll see in a while that Jacob will adopt these two as his own. They are Gentile, if you like, grafted in, which is a very interesting picture. Chapter 31 through 33, Jacob finally packs his bags and leaves Laban after much uh, hardship there. He returns to the promised land to face Esau. And this is a very interesting encounter. On route, angels meet him. And again, he has this wrestling match with God there, wrestles all night and is blessed. And his name is changed to Israel at that point. He promises to go and see Esau at this encounter. Esau says, come to where I am. And he said, well, you go on ahead, we'll come after. And he never goes. Well, he didn't lie, he just hasn't got there yet. Because during the tribulation, he will go. Israel will go to the land of Esau. And they'll be protected there for three and a half years during the tribulation. An incredible prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. So again, Jacob now coming back down into the land. Chapter 34, Jacob coming back into the land, though stops short of his destination. He stops at a place called Shechem, stays there for 15 years. And all sorts of problems start to occur. Dinah, his daughter, goes wandering. Simeon and Levi end up dealing with the problem. What they effectively do is suggest, because um, what happens is that Dinah ends up being raped by this man Shechem, who's uh, the son of the, the, the king of this area. And they then, out of their rage, suggest to the inhabitants of Shechem, well, why don't we join together and, you know, so on. Because they, this Shechem desperately wants to marry Dinah. And so they say, well, why don't you become like we are, become circumcised? And obviously they agree to it. And while they're not in a fit state to defend themselves, Simeon and Levi come and just massacre them all. It's a horrible situation. You know, this whole idea, you know, were they really looking to convert these people? Probably not. It was none of their intention. Dinah, though, is an interesting uh, character. You could study this situation in more depth. But it all began with that investigation. They do say that curiosity kills the cat. It also kills the Christian sometimes. Uh, We need to be very careful. She went out to see the daughter of the land. I wonder what it's like. It wasn't just a fleeting visit. She ends up getting entrapped. She stays there for many days. Uh, It ends with this humiliation, uh, as we just mentioned a moment ago. And followed by her desensitization. She stayed in the camp of the Hivites until her brothers come and take her away. The New Testament speaks of this. Paul, speaking to Timothy, says, The Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrine of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. You know, if you get burnt with something hot, you lose feeling in that particular part of your, your flesh. And it's the same with these things. I love it, as, as Chuck Nusler puts it, check the destination before buying the ticket. You know, we do that in life, but spiritually, when we look at something, when we think, well, that's interesting, I wonder if we'll check the destination, see where that path is going to lead you. Jacob finally does make it home in chapter 35, just in time to bury Isaac, his father. Those 15 years in Shechem had sown, if you like, the seeds of sin that caused problems. And of course, God is not mocked. What a man sows, he shall reap, we're told. 
Jacob's ineffectiveness the, in dealing with that situation that we were just talking about seems to be at the root of what then happens in chapter 35 as Reuben, his eldest son, has an affair with Bilhah, his handmaid, d- disgracing his father, this humiliation. Well, we look at the... Uh, the areas they've come back, this is where Jacob's come from, from Shechem, eventually gets down to this area uh, at the bottom here. Um, at uh, Bethlehem is where Rachel dies and is buried, and then finally comes back down to this area here. On route, right. Chapter 36, we have there detail for us, the descendants of Esau. Basically, they buy into the world. But it's a very short-lived gain. We're given the details of the three wives that Esau takes and their offspring and so on. Uh, Esau has 14 dukes that uh, come, tribal chiefs if you like, but none of them make it to the, kind of the rank of king. They go after the world, Esau's descendants, and they end up with effectively nothing. And he marries, as I said, into the local <coughs> power structure. <coughs> There was, there is another important descendant of Esau that will show up later in biblical history, and that's Herod the Great, as well. He was also a descendant of Esau. Uh, Hebrews just talks there. Um, just going to pick up here. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance though he sought it carefully with tears. You know, we all have the same opportunity. And sadly, some people choose the things of the world, the riches of the world, the success of the world, over the things of God. And one day people will realize the stupidity of that kind of decision. And so we get to the last section. Joseph and his dreams. Of course, he's rejected by his brethren. Uh, Joseph is a type or a model of Christ in over a hundred different ways. It's in Hosea 12 verse 10, the Lord speaking, I have also spoken by the prophets. I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. God says, I've used these types, these models. And it's such a wonderful thing to see how they're throughout scripture. If you want to try a little project, list some of those ways that you can find that Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ. It's incredible. So Jacob dwells in the land where his father was a stranger, notice, in the land of Canaan. It's not yet their land. There's still strangers in the land. So after 35 years plus, Jacob finally returns to this promised possession. Um, Again, he'd been away dealing with Laban and Esau and all these things. He's now 105 years old. And he, in his old age, gives this coat, um, this such a controversial thing, to Joseph. Some people question what it was, various options. One of the uh, ones I like the, the option of is that it was a seamless robe. Um, and the reason that may be the case, I know we have this idea of a multicolored coat, um, and it may indeed have been multicolored, but the idea of a seamless robe is in, in, interesting because David gives his daughters a seamless robe. It's a symbol of purity, and certainly that does speak of Joseph, also speaks of Jesus. The first dream Joseph has about the ears of corn is about the earth, in a sense. It's terrestrial, ruling on earth, possibly, is being uh, suggested there. The second dream, the stars, the sun, the moon. Again, suggestion maybe of ruling in heaven. But Jacob understands these things. 
And of course we find in Revelation 12, an idiom is used there, uh, picking up on this idea of this the sun, the moon, the twelve stars, representing the nation of Israel. Well, the brothers go off one day. Joseph has already given some bad reports about them. But now his father, Jacob, sends Joseph to go and find them. They're in the land of Shechem. If you remember, that was the land or the place of temptation and sin. Interesting, isn't it? The father sends a son to go and rescue the brethren. Interesting again. While he's there, his life, if you like, is taken by his brethren. He goes down into the pit. Yes, he is uh, alive. Um, but in this type, you see how uh, it obviously looks and speaks of Jesus as well. Proverbs 12.21 just says, There shall no evil happen to the just, but the wicked shall be filled with mischief. You know, later Joseph will say, now therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. Although at the time we don't understand sometimes, God, when we look back, will show us how he was working through these things. Joseph will later say as well, but as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. You know, that should be really the... Uh, the banner of our lives, that whatever happens, we will trust. Again, refer back to the book of Job, as Job says, yet though he slay me, will I trust him. Whatever God does, that's fine, because God is good and does good. I'll trust him, whatever. Chapter 38, a very interesting chapter. If we had more time, I'd tell you this. Judah marries a Canaanite, has three sons. I'm not going to read through all the text. But the first son is killed of the Lord. The second son is killed of the Lord. He's given a wife to this first son. And so the second son was supposed to raise up children for her. He doesn't. The third son is too young. So he sends his daughter-in-law away, this young girl by the name of Tamar. But then he doesn't fulfill his promise. He doesn't give his youngest son. And so as a result of it, we find that Tamar is uh, aware that Judah is in town. So she dresses up in this uh, clothing to suggest that she's a harlot. Judah ends up going in, she conceives, and we have this incredible account. What is interesting is that she ends up having twins. Pharaoh is the firstborn and becomes the one through whom the royal line will pass down to Jesus. I, the one who through this seed will come. The Torah will later state that an illegitimate child shall not enter the congregation of the Lord until the tenth generation. Do you know who the tenth generation was from Pharaoh's? It was King David, who not only entered into the congregation but became the king. David was always God's appointed king for the nation. And one of the ways, incredibly, we see that, if we look at the Hebrew text in Genesis 38... If we look, um, we look at the, the Hebrew letters, we find that we have the first, we go to the first bet, the Hebrew letter, and then the next letter, Ayan, next Zayan, um, of the word, what we have, Boaz, so a B, uh, like an O, A, and a Z. Uh, we find encrypted in the text at 49 letter distance sequences there. Now on its own, that doesn't really impress us, but what is interesting is, we find also, the name of Ruth, intertwined, because they get married anyway, don't they? There. As we go on, we find, still in chapter 38, the name Obed, again at 49 distant letter sequences. And then we have the name of Yishai, or Jesse, 
And then finally, we have the name of David. So what we have here is in the text at 49 letter sequences throughout Genesis 38, which speaks really of this prophetic root of this, of Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse and David. All as they're in correct chronological order. That can only be there by design. It's fascinating. Um, in Ruth chapter 4, there's a prophecy. Let thy house be like the house of Pharaoh's. Again, looking back to this. Who Tamar bore unto Judah. And we go on. So, to round out then, Joseph has his trials, but he has his purity of heart and mind. And although he's uh, put in these difficult situations, he's already steadfast. He's going to serve and trust God. We have this wonderful model of the butler and the baker the bread and the wine again. And of course, we have the wine symbolizing new life, the blood of Christ. And the butler is raised up to his old position. The baker, the body of Christ, broken. And the baker is the one who is hung on a tree. Incredible picture. Joseph, by now, is somewhere in his mid-twenties. Of course, he's a good-looking young man, and Potiphar's wife, no doubt, was also good-looking. They used to use a lot of cosmetics, The word um, cosmetic uh, comes from cosmos, the idea of bringing order out of chaos. Just to leave that with you. Um, He's presented with the perfect opportunity. Nobody's going to know about this sin. But of course God would know. And you just see the heart of this man at this point. You know, as he said, it would be great wickedness, not only to Potiphar, but it would be a sin against God, he says. And the decision had already been made. You know, we need to make those decisions before we get to those moments. Because if we get to those moments and we haven't already decided what we're going to do, chances are we will end up stumbling. Chapter 41, we go from rags to riches in a day. God's timing is incredible. After two years, this is from the point that these butler and baker are with Joseph. It's two years after that that finally he's released. It's been said before that God is seldom early but never late. Oswald Chambers said, If we learn to worship God in the trying circumstances, he'll alter them in two seconds when he chooses. I love that. So Joseph gives Pharaoh this advice, uh, interprets his dream, and effectively suggests this, uh, this tax on the people as well. And uh, he's given this position then of authority. Um, and just an incredible uh, rise from being a prisoner, a dream interpreter, to prime minister all in a day. This is now certainly God's blessings. Those who follow God find real contentment wherever God has them. You know, it's not about whether we're raised to positions or not. It's about being in the will of God. Uh, Philippians 4 just speaks there um, of whatever situation we're in, to be content. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Joseph then has this this plan to collect the taxes, to bring all the grain in and so on. And if time allowed, we could go on and look at um, the things they found in Egypt. Storehouses, grain storehouses, and all sorts of things that corroborate all this information. We might have time on Thursday, we'll go through some of those things uh, as well. So the sage is set now for Joseph's brothers to come. They come first of all. Joseph's now about 38. Of course, Joseph's life is about to drastically change again. And he's 21 years now since they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And he's confronted by his brothers. Of course, he's got the advantage. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. Um, 
their entrance literally fulfilled Joseph's first dream as they bowed down before him. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down with their faces to the earth, we're told. Now, we know that Joseph provides his little tests. Was it revenge? No, not at all. He was looking to try their hearts. He wants to see if there was repentance. You can't have reconciliation without repentance. It's a theme that goes all through scripture. They are put in prison for a short time. They're falsely accused. They plead their innocence. They're again accused, as I said, for three days. And then finally, all but Simeon are sent home with their money in their sacks as well. Well, Jacob doesn't want to send them back because this time they'd have to bring with them Benjamin. But eventually Jacob concedes and the whole family come back, this time with Benjamin. Joseph arranges his meal, seats them all in order, gives Benjamin a five times larger portion. But then there's one final test because he lets them go this time but puts his own cup in Benjamin's sack. And we know the situation. The suggestion, of course, is this idea of fellowship and things with this cup and so on. Let's just skip through these. Of course, what he's looking for is what's going on in the brother's heart. Would they be happy just to, to sell Benjamin now? Um, and of course we find that they are, they've given up uh, this uh, aggression, this, this attitude they had. They've repented. They've come to the end of themselves. Um, how shall we clear ourselves is what they say. Um, and God has found out the iniquity of your, of your servants. They recognize that this is of the Lord. Judah demonstrates uh, great love here because he says, I will willingly stand in the place of Benjamin, and so on. He doesn't try to get out of it. And then finally, Joseph reveals himself. But the interesting thing to note here is how does he do it? Because he chooses to reveal himself to them. How did they come to the place of repentance? It was Joseph's goodness. When did they discover Joseph? In their darkest hour. Now just think of that in the light of the, of the nation of Israel. When will they see Jesus? When he reveals himself to them. How will they come to know him? Through repentance. Through his goodness and through repentance. And when? In their darkest hour. And that's also very true of our own lives. So the rejected ruler, sorry, the one that they'd rejected has become their ruler. And it's interesting to note the response of Israel at his second coming. They will see that all along he'd been blessing them. Just as Joseph had been doing with his brethren. They remained blind until they were in a place of repentance. So many types of shadows and models through these things. Israel are then given the best of the land. Why? Well, Joseph's grace, giving them that which they didn't deserve. But it was also to keep them separate. It was to keep them separate from the Egyptians. Again, they wouldn't get entangled. They're given this area of Goshen, uh, or Goshen at the top there. Finally, Jacob makes his trip down. Um, and again, part of God's protection plan to get Israel out of the land of Canaan while all these things are going on in the land. Finally, Jacob will say before Pharaoh that the years of my pilgrimage are 130. He says, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. At 70, he'd fled from Esau. For 20 years, he'd served Laban. He then returns to face Esau, 
waste 15 years in Shechem, loses Rachel, effectively loses Joseph, and then for the short time seems to lose Simeon too. He spent most of his life providing for himself. It's uh, kind of the process of life versus the purpose of life. And now God is going to make him a great nation. At the end of his life, he must have wept uh, and just been so in awe of what God has done, the way that God had graciously and patiently led him. Jacob had done nothing to earn all of this privilege. God has provided it all. Chapter 48, as we said, we have these two sons of Joseph mentioned, these Gentiles grafted in. And they're here because I want, if you want to have a look through, um, there's a number of different ways in which Joseph is a type of Christ. That all these things are on the slides. So if you want to go through that at your leisure uh, afterwards, then please do. Um, Manasseh are given a portion in the land, Ephraim also. Chapter 49, we then see this blessing of Jacob on the individuals. And it's incredible, the prophetic element of this blessing that he speaks over his sons and the lands that they'll be given. Joseph is given the right of the firstborn. Levi becomes the one who has this right of the priestly tribe. And Judah, the kingly, uh, the kingly tribe from the nation, the one through whom the Messiah will come as well. Reuben had blown it because of his transgression. And so we gradually see how the land of Israel is made up of the sons of Jacob and they were allotted their portions. We'll talk more about that when we get to the book of Joshua. We find these are just listings of the 12 tribes as they occur in Scripture a number of different ways, but I can't resist just reading you this. This is the way they're listed in Revelation 7. Praise the Lord. This is the names of those sons. Praise the Lord. He's looked on my affliction and granted me good fortune. Happy am I. My wrestling has made me forget my sorrow. God hears me, has joined me, purchased me, exalted me by adding to me the son of his right hand. Again, wonderful design we see. And then to close, Jacob is taken back and buried in the land. Joseph warns his brothers, don't forget, that's where our home is. That's where we're going. There's... Um, this uh, cave of Machpelah where uh, Abraham had purchased uh, and uh, we find that Sarah, Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, Leah and now finally Jacob will also be buried there as well. Um, finally the brothers have this question now that Jacob's dead what will Joseph do? And quite simply Joseph answers them and says rather than being uh, um, dictatorial with them or pressing them in any way he makes it very clear that he's going to show this love and this grace because what had happened was because of God's working, because of God's dealing in Joseph's life. And Joseph recognized all these things. Joseph has 93 years in Egypt, 13 of those as a slave and a servant, 80 years as the second to Pharaoh. He sees his children to the fourth generation, we're told. And then like Jacob before him, Joseph reminds his brethren that their inheritance is not in Egypt. God has made this covenant with Abraham and they're going to be led out of Egypt by Moses. They'll be led into the promised land by Joshua and then they're going to take complete possession of their land under their Messiah, Jesus. And that's uh, not far away now. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we again just thank you for your word. We thank you that it just explains so much of why things are as they are. But Lord, we see again through it your faithfulness 
Lord, the way you dealt with Abraham. Lord, even though at the first he wasn't ready just to let everything go. And Lord, how you're so patient with us. And Lord, with Isaac and with Jacob. And then finally with Joseph as we see this pure young man living a life to honour and glorify you. Lord, just help us to draw from these lessons, we pray. There is so much to feed our souls and our spirits. Lord, may we keep growing in knowledge and grace that our lives may bring glory to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.